0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you for your blessings upon us. Guide us in this message. Open our hearts so that we may love Jesus evermore. And in his name we pray, amen. So the last few weeks, we have been covering the ministry of Jesus, specifically the ministry of freedom, of mercy and sight, of healing and life. Now I know these topics are very broad. They are extremely broad, and yet they're very personal at the same time. And a number of you have talked to me about how you have been touched by these messages, especially in the last two weeks when we talked about crying out to Jesus. And it's through his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that our lives are touched. And when we are touched by God, we receive his grace. It's his blessing that we receive. And indeed, isn't that the ministry of Jesus? It is a ministry of blessing. But blessing is a word that we use all the time. But what does it actually mean? We never stop to really think about what does it mean to be blessed. Well, blessing is the pronouncement of God's favor. It is a pronouncement of God's grace, mercy, his steadfast love, his loving kindness. It is also a pronouncement about the grace that you have received and thus you have assurance for that blessing. So when you are blessed by God, when you are given His favor, you have assurance of that. Not, that. not that God needs to be reassured, but we need to be reassured all the time of His blessing. Not because His blessing fades away, but because our thoughts, our feelings can be shaken, can be stirred, can be whipped up by the storms of life, right? and We've talked about that along the way as well. So, we need to hear the blessings of God again and again and again. And nowhere in Jesus' ministry do we find this more pronounced than in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. Beatitude, by the way, means blessing, but it's not just blessing or favor. The sense is supreme blessing, or you could say, Perfect blessedness. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus is pronouncing God's perfect blessedness for all who believe. But here's the problem with any favor of God, we want to take it and shape it into our own means. Some people have taken the Beatitudes and made them almost likened to the Ten Commandments. Well, if we just follow the Beatitudes, we will gain that blessing. Just like we've done with the Ten Commandments, we would fail every single time. Other people have taken the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount for their own use, for morality, for ethics, for political uh, philosophies. I don't know if you know this, but the people who know Gandhi's life and know it really well, he was greatly influenced in his political views from the Sermon on the Mount. But he did not believe in Jesus. So for people who tried to make it in the Ten Commandments, to try to make it into some political, moral, ethical, or philosophical statement, they miss it. It's actually very clear when you read it. The Beatitudes, in fact the whole Sermon on the Mount, really is about God's perfect blessedness and entering into the kingdom of heaven. This is what the focus is. As a matter of fact, our first Beatitude that we'll read today, it says that the blessing is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 10, it also talks, it's almost like a bookend, talks about entering into the kingdom of heaven. And you find that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I have to tell you, the depth, the breadth, the length, the width, the height of the Beatitudes is quite profound. And if you really let it, it will touch your intellect. It'll touch your heart. And it'll move you to action, to live in a way that Christ calls you to. So today, we're going to focus on the first three. And we're going to begin with the first one, which is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this one has been used and misused many way, in many ways, specifically because in Luke's gospel, he gives a shorthand version of this. He says, blessed are the poor. So people have taken this to say, well, to be blessed, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must literally have no wealth. You have to give up everything to be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And look, wealth can be a stumbling block. Remember Jesus. What did he tell the rich young Ruler, he said, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But it wasn't wealth that was the stumbling block to that rich man. It was his covetousness of that wealth. That was the stumbling block. So we can't take this particular beatitude and say it is about giving up wealth, specifically so if it's not about that, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we're going to attack this by looking at the opposite first. So if somebody thinks that they are rich in spirit, what would that be like? Well, you would kind of start to think, well, they might be full of themselves. They might be prideful. They might like to think that they're smarter, brighter, better, have more skill and ability, and especially when it comes to matter of spiritual things, they are above the rest. That's what it would be like to be rich in spirit. And indeed, Jesus talked about this. In Luke's gospel, there's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'm going to read Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 13 for you. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So who was the rich in spirit? The Pharisee, right? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. How arrogant could that be? That's about as full of oneself as one could get. But if you are like that, God will discipline you. In Revelation to the church in Laodicea, Jesus lambasted those in that church. This is what Jesus said to those in that church For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and shame your nakedness that it may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. God has... No patience, so to speak, for those who think they are rich in spirit. But in the parable, who is the one who is poor in spirit? It's the tax collector, right? And what does he say? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had nothing knowing that before God he was but a poor beggar. Just like Bartimaeus was, right? A couple of weeks ago, when we talked about Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, what did he cry out for? He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Listen, the poor in spirit has nothing to do with your wealth or your lack of wealth, it has nothing to do with your position or your lack of position. It has nothing to do with your skills, abilities, or intellect, or the lack thereof. It is who you are before the Lord. And we are all beggars before the Lord. We come with nothing but empty hands before the Lord to receive His grace and His mercy, to be poor poor in spirit is to know that you live because of God's grace and mercy. What do we say? His mercy is made new every day and we thank Him for that. To be poor in spirit is to know that you need, nay, that you must have Christ Jesus. Must have Him. There's no other way Kent Hughes said this. He said, poverty of spirit is the posture of faith. And I think it would be like this. Poverty of spirit is the posture of faith. God pours out his grace to the spiritually bankrupt for only they are open to believe and receive his grace and salvation. He does this and with no one else and no one can enter the kingdom without poverty of spirit. So the blessing for this is entering the kingdom of God. And we talked about this, which seems eons ago, right? We've actually been doing this series since January. And back in January, we talked about the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? It's probably good to do a little refresher. I don't know, I can't remember last week sometimes, let alone January. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is God's sovereign rule. But it's not just a political or physical rule. We would think of it, the essence of the kingdom of heaven is spiritual in nature. And in spiritual nature, it does cover all the physical. It does cover everything else. But it is not just a far-off blessing. See, when you receive Jesus Christ and His gospel, it's a present blessing. And remember, what is a blessing? It is the favor of God. To know Jesus Christ, to to be compelled by the good news, the gospel, is a blessing here and now. And when you are poor, In spirit, the paradox is you are rich in Christ Jesus. To be poor in spirit is to know the riches, the wealth, the depth and breadth of God's favor upon you in Jesus. And by that, you receive the blessing of the kingdom of God here and now and then in the fullness of time. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. Now the next beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In some ways, this is really similar, it would seem, at a first glance, to the first one, isn't it? I mean, it seems similar, but to be poor in spirit is a little bit more on the intellectual side, to know that you are poor in spirit. But when you mourn, there's an emotional component to it, isn't there? It grabs your heart, or it actually brings you to your knees when you realize who you are before God. Charles, uh, excuse me, Charles Colson, in his book of essays, Who Speaks for God?, tells of watching a segment of 60 Minutes in which host Mike Wallace interviewed Auschwitz survivor Yehiel Denur a principal witness at the Nuremberg War Crime Trials. So during that 60-minute interview, Mike Wallace showed a film clip of the Nuremberg Trials, specifically of Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was one of the chief organizers for the Holocaust, in which millions were killed. Dunor had been a prisoner in one of the concentration camps for at least two years. So in that film clip, Dunor sees Eichmann, and he's just stopped cold by his presence. And then he starts to sob uncontrollably and then faints. Now, in his book, Colson poses the question, Was Deneur overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories? The answer to this is no. Deneur says in that interview, he realized that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Deneur. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Wallace then summed up De discovery. He said, Eichmann is in all of us. Now, this is a horrifying statement, isn't it? And yet, we have to understand that sin is in all of us. And it wants to come out at a moment's notice. How many of you have been watching the news lately and have yelled at the TV? Right? And you start to read more and more and your hearts become filled with anger, hatred, wrath, and dare I even say for some, murder? For some of us are like that. And when we realize the depth and breadth of the sin that we have, we should mourn. But mourning actually has a blessing in it. When you actually mourn for your sin. Because to mourn here is to mourn over one's sin. And true mourning can actually lead to repentance. And thus, in repentance, there's comfort and, dare I even say, joy. Another paradox here. Now, I talked about a couple of weeks ago that we have the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's on the screen all the time. It's from Nehemiah. Most people don't realize the context. And I would encourage you to read Nehemiah because it's on our screen all the time. But in Nehemiah, for so long, God's word had not been read. The law had not been read. So Ezra the priest and others read the law from morning to midday. You think a, a sermon might be long. How about reading for hours on time? And what they did, is they explained it to him. And you know the reaction to the people? The, the people's reaction to God's word? They mourned. They mourned wept because they knew that they had sinned so greatly against God. So I'm going to read you a little bit more context for what it says. Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 9 through 10. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When there is true mourning that leads to repentance, there is comfort. And there is joy. There is comfort and joy in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And thus Jesus is pronouncing blessing, favor upon all those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Quite the paradoxes, right? If you want to be rich, be poor in spirit. If you want comfort and joy, mourn. And yet there's the height and depth of all of this. And you see, you just can't, you can't grasp these like, oh, I'm going to do that now, right? You can't. It affects your intellect. It affects your heart if you but take in these words. And it would move you to live in a certain way as well. And thus we get to the third beatitude. The third is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, meek. What co- I'm not looking for answers, but what comes to mind when you think about meek? You might think about someone who's timid, someone who might be weak, someone who might be so gentle that they are like a doormat and people walk all over them. I mean, these are some of the things, especially in our culture, associated with that word meek. As a matter of fact, we, meek, in that sense, is the antithesis, just the opposite, for our culture in America. We tell our kids and our adults from a young age, stand up for yourself. Be strong. Be vocal. Go for it, right? Don't let anybody walk over you. <laughs> okay. How many of you as parents told your children, you need to be meek? Right? None of us. I didn't do that because the world's idea of what meek means is not the biblical idea of what meek means. I would encourage you to read all of Psalm 37, 1 through 11. But you could read all of it, too. We're going to focus a little bit on 1 through 11. And in this case, we're going to find two different categories, things not to do and things to do regarding the meek. So if you take a look carefully in the verses, do not fret is used five times. So you would think that if there's a little repetition there, we should pay attention to that, right? Fret. It's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But it's a really good word. To worry, agonize, be troubled by, be constantly anxious, to be distressed. Another word for that is to wear down. You know, you've got the idea of somebody's fretting, they're like doing this, and after a while it kind of wears down, not their physical being. But when somebody is so engaged in Fretting over something, being so anxious, it wears you down mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically too, doesn't it? Fretting is not good for yourself. And this is what it says. Fret not. Fret not yourself because of evil doers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. So, one aspect that he's really talking about here in the psalm is fretting about evildoers. And again, there's a lot of people listening to the news, yelling at the TV, things like that, who are fretting over things that they cannot control, things that are truly outside of your sphere of influence. And when you do that, it has ill effects on your well-being. When we fret about things outside of our control, it only increases anxiousness, worries. It makes us full of dis-ease. So you could say fretting is a dis-ease or disease, and it's not good to indulge in it. Now look, there are things you can do that are in your sphere of influence. You can call your leaders. You can write letters to them. You can write letters to the editor. You can start grassroots movements. You can do all of that. That's actually within your sphere of influence, but to start to fret about things that are outside of your in, of influence, especially, I mean, I don't know President Putin, but what can I do and what we do every week? We pray, don't we? I can do that. We can also focus on the gospel and Jesus Christ during this time. I have to tell you, during this two years of pandemic, it's been quite the... Uh, shaping experience for me as a pastor, right? There's a lot of fretting you could do. Technology every week, whack all. But after a while, it's kind of like, you know what? I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's where I'm going to put my focus. Do you remember uh, Operation Christmas Child? We've done it every year, past couple years. Franklin Graham's organization, we fill up the shoe boxes. They go out to millions of people, millions of kids throughout the world. And so he recently wrote a letter that talk about God's timing. I got just this week as I was working on the sermon. And in this letter, he says, Last year, through that outreach and through the outreach of Franklin Graham's ministry, More than 56,000 children received Jesus as Lord and Savior in Ukraine. He goes on to say this. Whoops. I guess I'm missing a slider. It's out of order. Graham said in a recent letter, we received a video from one of our church partners whose city was under bombardment night after night. Nevertheless, several children came to church on Sunday to study Bible lessons. They were understandably scared that their hometown had become a battlefield. Yet their faith remained strong. As the children hid God's word in their heart, they learned to trust him during times of trial. We know that the Lord has already won, said the teacher. This is what we can do. We can focus on Jesus Christ and his gospel. See, those children, even in the battle, were learning what it means to be meek. So let us learn what it means to be meek. It means to trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your ways to the Lord. If you want to be meek, trust in the Lord. And what is trust? Trust is but faith. To have faith that he is sovereign over all things. And this is not just a mere intellectual faith. I guarantee you those children and all the Christians who are in the war right now, this is not an intellectual exercise. See, when I give, when I trust in the Lord, when I put my faith in Him, I actually have more delight in Him. And the delight and the joy of the Lord actually grows. And the more I trust and the more I delight in Him, the more I wish to commit my ways to Him to walk in his ways. Look, even though war rages around us, and even though we might not have a spiritual war, you know that there's a, I mean, sorry, a physical war right now, not in the United States. You know that there's a spiritual war raging right here and right now. So even in the midst of strife and tumult, when you trust in the Lord, you delight in the Lord, you commit your ways to Him, it gives you a peace. It gives you a peace because you have that assurance of God's favor or God's blessing. And we inherit this wonderful blessing. In Revelation chapter 21, Jesus Christ, while on this earth, was the meekest person you could ever meet. He trusted, he delighted, he committed fully to the Father. We too should do the same. This is what it means to be meek. And I hope you understand that's about as strong as you can ever be. So, intellect, emotions, and actions, right? This week, ponder how poor you are in spirit, but rich in Christ. Mourn for your sin, but be comforted and rejoice in the gospel. Be meek in the Lord. Commit your ways unto God. And all the people said, amen, amen, amen.